Well, if this is one of your very first times at Faith Community Church or just joining us online for one of the first times, we're really honored to have you this morning. And we're continuing a teaching series together called The Stories We Tell. And just in case you're brand new, here's a quick catch up on where we've been. We began this series in the New Testament letter of Colossians chapter 2. And we said that the more we know and understand what God has done for us in Jesus, the more our hearts will be encouraged, the more we will love each other, and the more we'll experience what Colossians called the full riches of assurance. It just means that a, a fuller sense that you really are at peace with God, that you really do belong to him by faith, and that you're not just psyching yourself out, but you actually know what God has done for you in the Lord. And at the same time we saw, same chapter in the New Testament, that there's something called a plausible argument as well. We've been calling these the stories that we tell, but a plausible argument is just a story we tell about who we are, about who God is, what he's like, that sounds good, it makes some sense, uh, helps us get through life, but upon closer inspection, it really does not hold up when you look at the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. It just doesn't jive with with what's actually happened. And so today we're going to be talking about the difference between what I'll call the prodigal suspicion that lurks in every single one of our hearts. Okay, so no matter who you are this morning or where you're coming from, you have within your soul a suspicion about the nature of God and what he's really like and uh, how does he really feel about me. And uh, we're going to contrast that with uh, what I'm going to call the spirit of adoption. Okay, and to do that, we're going to look together at the New Testament letter of Galatians. So, uh, let's turn to Galatians chapter 3 today. That'll be on page 974 if you want to borrow a Bible from under the chairs in front of you, okay? Page 974. And uh, if you've been around for a while, you know we spent about a month in the book of Galatians earlier this year. But in case this is one of your first times with us, Galatians is a letter written by a man named Paul to some churches that he established in the Roman province of Galatia. That's where the letter gets its name. And these churches existed because Paul came to them preaching about Jesus and God gave them a new life in the spirit. And shortly after Paul left, some other people came saying, you know, that's, that's great. It's great that you've trusted Jesus. Good for you. Uh, it's great that you've received the Holy Spirit, but that is not enough. If you really want to please God, if you really want to be free from his judgment, here are a bunch of other external, superficial rules that you need to keep as well. And it was upsetting the faith of the churches. It was creating fear and division. And people were wrestling with, am I really a Christian? And is what happened to me real? Or did I make it up in my mind? And things like that. It's the same today. And Paul is writing to straighten that out, okay? We're going to jump into the middle of the letter. Uh, Galatians 3, starting in verse 23, and here's what Paul says. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there is no male and female. 
For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you, are, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. So the first part of the scripture we just read is a reminder that at no point was the law of Israel meant to be the end all and be all of a relationship with God. The Bible is a story of God's unfolding plan of redemption and God has always had more in mind than keep the law or die. Okay, the law was a guardian, Paul says, right there in verse 24. The law was a guardian until the coming of faith would be revealed. He's just talking about the faith in Jesus that's now been revealed. And until that happened, God had put his people under this guardian called the law. In this context, in a Galatian context, you know, we have guardians today. Like you got to sign off, you know, that your so-and-so's guardian. In this context, a guardian... Uh, was a servant in the household whose job was to raise the children of wealthy parents to not be spoiled brats. The guardian was usually a slave, usually male, and their job was to teach wealthy kids how to work, uh, how to be disciplined, and get them to school and stuff on time. And they were known to be, you know, they could be relatively harsh, and their discipline was pretty severe. But the thought was that this is the best way to raise rich kids. There's probably something to it, okay? And there's a reason why historically Christian catechisms have always begun with the law because kids need to be taught where the boundaries are and what it feels like when you cross them, what what that pain feels like so that you can grow up to be a free and responsible adult. So that's the point of the law, Paul says. The whole history of Israel up to the crucifixion of Jesus was preparation for faith, which he says in verse 26, this faith makes us sons of God. And that's what we're talking about today. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith, verse 26. Now, he's writing this to mostly non-Jewish people like us. And the title, Sons of God, is a title applied to Israel. It's a title applied to the Jews. And in verse 29, you can see there, he says, we are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise of God by faith. So uh, where, is, where is Israel? Everybody look at you, point at yourself, point at your neighbor. Right here, you're sitting in it. In chapter 6, he calls the church the Israel of God. How can that be if you're not born into the family? 
The only way you can become a legal part of a family you're not born into is to be adopted. And that's what we're talking about today, the spirit of adoption. Now, before we move on to the last part of what we read, I can't let this go, okay, because we're doing baptism together next week. So look look at verse 27. We're going to have a quiz, okay? I want to know that you're awake and that you're actually looking at what we're looking at. Okay, verse 27, what what is the external marker of our adoption, like how would you know that someone's been legally adopted into the family? What's the external marker? Baptism, thank you, 1,000 points if you answered baptism, thank you very much. Baptism, it's just kind of a passing comment that he makes, it's the only time he talks about baptism in the letter of Galatians, it kind of pops up and then he just moves on, but he says, so, so you know, you're reading this, you're a Galatian Christian reading this and he says, you are sons of God by faith. And you might say, well, how, but how would I know? You know like, and he, he tells you, as many of you as were baptized, you've put on Christ. And it's just a passing comment. He does not mean that baptism saves you. Okay, that would run so counter to everything else he's written so far. He doesn't mean baptism saves you. It's just, I just want you to see that everywhere, the New Testament assumes if you're a Christian, you're baptized. If you're looking for the teaching about unbaptized Christians, it's right next to unicorns in the New Testament. This is not there. And I just, I just want you to see, he's just saying, he's reminding him, look, we've all been through this legal process of adoption together called baptism, and there's no Jew or Greek here, there's neither slave nor free, no male or female, we're all one in Christ Jesus, partly because we've all shared this experience together, and if you're Christ, then you're Abraham's, and so on. And then he goes, he just reiterates in verses one through three, he kind of reiterates what he's just said, but here's what he says in verse four. So here's what happens in our adoption. Okay, we're gonna kind of beat verse four nearly to death this morning, so I have it in front of you. Here's what it says. When the fullness of time had come, it's just a reminder that you are caught in one long story. God sent forth his son. See, Jesus is the pre-existent Son of God. True God from true God, light from light, begotten, not made, coexisting and co-equal with the Father. The Redeemer, whoever he was gonna be, the Redeemer had to be God. He had to be God because only an infinite God could make payment for infinite sin. We could not handle that. So he says, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, See, the Redeemer had to be genuinely one of us. He had to be genuinely human. This goes all the way back to Genesis chapter three. Adam is the one who plunged us into this mess and another Adam, another human being, would have to be the one to take us out. That's the only way that justice would actually work out. So he had to really be human. So God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. He became just like us in every way to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. All right, that phrase, adoption as sons, it's actually just one word in Greek. It literally means so we would receive sonness. So we would receive sonness. I think the NIV uh, puts it so that we would receive the full rights of sonship. We said a couple of weeks ago, if you were here, that our assurance rests in part 
on the legal objective facts of the law. That you can have assurance before God because what he's done is to actually give you a perfect, moral, righteous record. And that redemption is not a legal fiction. Redemption is a real thing by which one person buys out of slavery another person and it's real. Now we can add this week that our, assur- our assurance also rests in the legal objective facts of adoption. In the Greco-Roman world, okay, that Paul is writing to here, uh, the giving of full rights of sonship is what would happen when you had a wealthy person who for whatever reason wasn't able to have children of his own and so he finds someone and adopts them and in, the, in, a, in a, just a matter of you know, seconds, that person's life, their status in the world is completely changed. Adoption means taking someone from, from whatever they were before and through a legal process, number one, completely canceling all their debts and then bringing them into a completely new relationship with you as the father so that they, they become the heir of all things and you change their name. That's baptism, by the way. We, I mean, in baptism, we literally put the name of God on you, right? We baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So a person who's adopted gets, gets a, a completely new status in the world. Their debts are wiped clean and they receive a new name. And, but on the other hand, the Father owns all the property He has all the rights of discipline, but he also takes on all of your liabilities. He takes full responsibility for you, and you reflect on on your father. And that's exactly what's happened in the church. When we become a Christian, we typically think of that as a process of having something taken off of us, that God removes the debt and the, the weight of my sin And that's absolutely true. And if that's all that it were, that would be amazing. But redemption is more than just having something taken off. We we have something put on us as well. Redemption is moving people from slaves to sons. We are legally, objectively, children of the living God. And he takes full responsibility for you now. And it's freely given to those who have faith in Jesus. John chapter one puts it this way. To all who did receive Jesus, who all received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right, the legal right, to become children of God. Children born not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but born of God. This is how J.I. Packer writes it in in his uh, chapter on adoption. J.I. Packer says this, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means he doesn't understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish, 
is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. Here are just a few things that that means. Number one, adoption means a completely changed relationship with God. If I could paint in really, really broad brush strokes, okay, this is not fair and it's not the whole truth, okay, but if I could just paint in really broad brush strokes, the, the relationship between God and humanity in the Old Testament is described uh, often, or I would say primarily, uh, as, you know, the, the stress is on the otherness and the holiness of God. He is completely consistent. He is completely other. He does not need anything from us. He isn't incomplete without us. He is robed in majesty and power and wonder so that men and angels hide their faces from him. He is the reality behind all realities. He is the first cause behind all causes. And the emphasis in the Old Testament, I mean, chapter upon chapter upon chapter in the Old Testament is about the need for you to keep your distance lest you die. All the provisions for the temple and sacrifices and the tabernacle and the, you know, the mountain and just all of this other stuff. The emphasis is on watch out and don't get too close lest the holiness of God destroy you. And what's described in the New Testament, by the way, is not less than that. Everybody got that? I mean, if, you're, if your God is any less holy, less majestic, less awesome, that's not the Christian God. And yet the emphasis of the New Testament is on coming boldly, wanting you to come and to come boldly. God wants us to draw near with assurance of faith. Almost no one, almost no one in the Old Testament addresses God as Father. I can only think of one instance, there's probably more, I can only think of one off the top of my head. In the New Testament, it's the normal way you're to address God, is as Father. Because we have been legally adopted. We are not servants, we're not slaves. We're family. Now there are like a million implications of, of this for your life, okay? Someday we need to just do a whole series on adoption, okay? Here would be just one. And I would call this the lowest hanging fruit. One of the first places this would show up if you believed it is in the way you pray. Absolutely. Let's have a quiz. Jesus taught us to pray saying, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Do you understand how radically awesome that is? I know of no other religion in the world that allows you to address God in that fashion. Our Father. And if you look at the way Jesus talks about prayer, for Jesus, the fatherhood of God is the basis of all Christian prayer. I think almost every time he talks about prayer, he talks about the, the character of your father. And that's why he, he wants you to come. In addressing God this way, the thing is, in addressing God this way, we're not being presumptive. 
We're not being prideful. You are not crossing a line when you speak to God this way. But if you were a servant or a slave, you would be. There are only three people in the world who get to call me dad. You are not them. If you call me dad, there's something wrong with you, right? There are only three people in the world who get to do that because I made them. They have a legal right to walk into my presence and speak to me, you know, as pop or whatever. I wouldn't do that with the Lord, but I'm just saying. A servant and a son may live in the same house. They come to the father on very different terms. The servant's position in the household is one of daily survival. It's full of fear and worry. His place is always up for grabs and it's completely dependent on his performance. The son has none of those concerns. If we had a, let's, pre, let's pretend we, we had a maid in my house. We do not have a maid in my house. Let's pretend that we did. You know, we could fire that person if she didn't do her job. We can't do that with the boys. We just can't, you know what I mean? We're, t- we're together for good. Here's, here's one test for your heart to know if you are operating as a son or a servant in your house. When you screw up, how many of you screw up from time to time? Okay, thank you. When you screw up, the way religion works is, ugh, I screwed up. Dad is going to kill me. Adoption says, I screwed up. I've got to call dad. Do you see the difference? And Paul is saying, you're in that second camp. Adoption is the basis of all Christian praying. And I'm, if, you, if you don't look forward to time in prayer, if you aren't drawn to prayer, There is something about what we're talking about that you don't actually believe. Okay, whatever you may say, whatever your profession of faith may be, if you don't look forward to prayer, if you're not drawn to prayer, you don't believe this. There's either something about God's character you don't really trust or about your position in the household that you don't really trust. To be a child of God is the highest privilege that the gospel offers to us. To be a child of God is to hold the second highest position in the universe. The New Testament says that you and I, we, will rule nations and angels together. Even now, as weak as we are, spiritual powers and authorities have to submit to us in Jesus' name. Adoption means that we inherit everything that belongs to the Father. How much belongs to God, class? Everything. And that's always been the plan, by the way. God has never wanted slaves. He wants sons and daughters who will rule at his side. That has always been the plan. Go back to Genesis chapter 2. And now he has purchased them with the blood of Jesus. To be a child of God 
is to have Christ as your brother. Did you know that? To be a child of God is to have Christ as your brother. We call on Jesus as Savior and Lord. That is absolutely true. But you've been adopted into a royal family. And he calls us brother and sister. There's this place in Hebrews 2.11 where he says, Jesus is not ashamed because of what has happened to us, okay? Because he's given us this completely righteous moral record. It says, Jesus is not ashamed to call you brother and sister. Do you believe that? Don't raise your hand. Anybody have a brother or sister you're a little embarrassed by? <laughs> Ian? No? Okay. <laughs> Anyone have a brother or sister you're just a little embarrassed by? You know, you're just, you don't want the girlfriend to meet him right away or whatever it is. Some of you operate or you think that that's the way Jesus feels about you. And he, it says, no, he's not ashamed to call you his brother. Romans chapter 8 says Jesus is the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. So adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers to us. Justification by faith, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago, is the heart of the heart of the heart of the Christian message because it's what makes every other blessing of the New Testament possible. It is the key to understanding who Jesus was and what he did, but even justification by faith is a means to this end. It is not simply enough to take away your sin. You have received sonship in Christ. The doctrine of adoption does not lower God or bring him down to our standards or make him any less fearsome or any less holy or any less righteous. Adoption lifts your head. Adoption, and this is not fantasy, okay? This is rooted in the objective, legal, immutable facts of the law. We are his by right and by law. Ask an adoptive parent. So 1 John 3, 1 says, behold, behold, look what love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. In verses 4 and 5, God sent the Son to redeem us into adoption through the objective, legal, lawful work of Christ on the cross. But in verse 6, something new happens. In verse 6, he says, God sends the Spirit to help you behold, to help you to see to make the, the objective work of Jesus real to you, tangible to you, so you can taste it and feel it. He says, because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So do you see what they do? The, the son helps secure something for us that is objective and real, and the spirit helps us to feel it to behold it and to see it. So you can claim, this is how you reassure your heart. You can claim what the son does. You point to the historical work of Jesus and you say, I, I know that he died for me on the cross. I'm trusting that. I believe that with all my heart. God, help my unbelief. Help me to believe it. And the spirit comes along and breathes life into it and makes it real to your heart. 
The Spirit crying, Abba, Father, is an important part in Paul's mind for you to live as a son and not a slave because this is the deal. Many Christians, I'm gonna go ahead and say most of us live like slaves more than sons. Most of us, I think, do. The truth is, you can belong to God by faith, but still live as though your status is servant. Jesus tells a story that I think illustrates this, the difference between these two things. It's called the, 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 the parable of the prodigal son. It's in Luke chapter 15. It's one of Jesus' most famous and, and best loved stories. I'm gonna read just a small part to you now. This is from Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 18. So the prodigal son has run off from his father and just wasted, you know, squandered his inheritance and he wants to return home. Luke 15, 18. He says, I will arise and go to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for the son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Sinclair Ferguson wrote a book called The Spirit of Adoption and he he says this, part of the lesson of this story is that the reality of the love of God for us is often the last thing to make sense. It's often the last thing that really becomes real to us. We fix our eyes upon ourselves, our past sins, our present guilt. It seems impossible that the Father should love us. So many Christians go through life with a prodigal suspicion. We have this native inability to believe that salvation is by grace and love. And we're slow to realize we have the status of sons, but the mindset of a hired servant. And so we come to the father, saying to him, and this, and this is the thing, this is, a, this is the definition of a plausible argument. We come to the father saying, I'm not, I'm not worthy to be here, I'm not worthy to be your child, I'm not asking for too much, just, just give me a place on the estate, I'll pay my own way, just a little food would be fine. But I don't, I don't need to be treated like a son. And, and, you know, to our natural minds, that seems like a humble thing to do. It feels like a rational thing to do. The fact is, it is completely out of line with the cross and resurrection of Jesus. When you come to the Father that way, I'm not worthy to be called your son. I don't want to presume upon you. I'm not asking for too much. What you are saying is, I'm not really sure you're that rich. And I'm not really sure you're that good. And I'm really not sure that what Jesus has done is quite enough. So let me work my way back. You come to the Father in prayer and you you don't want to come till you've straightened your life out a bit. That's pride. Feels like humility, but what, what you're preoccupied with is you. You're preoccupied with your own history, your own sins, your own issues, and so you you tell yourself, I'm gonna be super humble, I'm not gonna presume upon God. 
I want to come as an employee. It's unbelief. It's unbelief. And part of the Spirit's job is to come to your heart and scream, Abba, Father. This, this is Sinclair Ferguson again. He says, the Spirit is the Father's kiss. The Spirit is the Father running to you, throwing his arms around you. The Spirit is the new robe around your shoulders. He is the family ring put on your finger. He's the shoes on your feet. He comes and he makes what's, what's true, he makes it real to your heart. That's the same voice that spoke to the Lord Jesus at his baptism as he came out of the water saying, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That is the same voice that speaks into your heart in Galatians 4, 6. Abba, Father. 150 years ago, Charles Spurgeon preached a sermon on Luke chapter 15. Just, just these four, this was his whole text. The father kissed him. And he said this in the middle of his sermon. He said, some of us have known what it is to be too happy to live. The love of God has been so overwhelmingly experienced by some of us on a few occasions that we almost had to ask God to stop the delight for we could not endure any more. If God had not shielded his love and glory a bit, I think we would have died for joy. That's the spirit speaking into your heart. Abba, Father. Now, one of the temp- now, Charles Spurgeon is speaking to Victorian Englanders 150 years ago who are like uber afraid of any kind of experience. Do you know what Victorian England? Everybody's laced up to the collars and you don't even show your ankles and just, okay? We don't live there anymore. We live in a context where experience is everything and people chase all these, just wanting spiritual experiences and that's how we determine what's true. Is, are, is there fireworks? Is there electricity here? You know, and things like that. So, so the danger for us is to read Galatians 4, 6 and begin chasing all these different spiritual experiences. And I would just say to you this morning, don't do that. You don't need to go chasing spiritual experiences. The Spirit is in you already. If you have said yes to Jesus, then the Spirit of God is already in you speaking to your heart. Now you talk to any mature Christian, okay, who's been walking with the Lord for 10 years or so, they will tell you some wild stories. They will have stories about times when, you know, some kind of experience with the living God that just overwhelmed the senses and just thought, Wow, like you just get this glimpse of the Father's love for you. But I think they would tell you it wasn't because they were chasing something down. They're not sticking their fingers in light sockets to cha- you know, feel the lightning. If you ask them, they would tell you. It's just in the, in the ordinary day-to-day, God has given you everything that you need to hear his voice. Prayer, reading God's word, being with the congregation when it's gathered for worship, simple, simple things. Now you're here this morning and you're saying to yourself, are we really gonna get a lecture now about how we need to pray and read our Bibles more? 
Yes, you are. (laughs) Because this is the way, these ordinary simple things are the way that God makes his presence and his character real to our hearts. My oldest is 13 years old. I've let him know one of my goals for your summer. First of all, we're going to lift weights and get super buff. That's not an issue today. The second is, I'm going to teach you to have a quiet time every day. To just open your Bible, to read, and to talk to your father. Because you're old enough now. You need to begin relating to your father as your father, not through your dad. If you are 13 years or older, I would give you the same challenge this morning. My very first Christian mentor when I was 18 years old, the first thing he told me to do, he said, I want you to set aside 15 minutes three times a week. I want you to just read some scripture and I want you to pray. That was when I was 18. And it, you know, it just grew, it's grown and it's grown and it's grown. And I have had some wild experiences in the love of God. But I was not sticking my finger in light sockets. And so I, would, I just encourage you this morning, you don't need to chase this stuff. Pursue your father in the means that he's given you. Let me close with this. Worship team, you guys can come on up. I'm just gonna close with this. This is J.I. Packer. He said, it is not as we strain after feelings and experiences, but as we seek the living God himself, looking to him as our father, prizing his fellowship, and finding ourselves in increasing concern to know and please him, then the reality of the Spirit's ministry, the reality of our sonship, becomes visible to our hearts and in our lives. So I commend that to you this morning. Let me just pray for us before we uh, sing together. Actually, I'm gonna invite you to pray wherever you are this morning. You know what? Sermon 2.0, sorry. Just, we're not done. Okay. Some of you here have been listening now for two months to me talk about how salvation is absolutely a gift of God's grace from beginning to end, okay? And I want you to see, okay, in the, in the story of the prodigal son, the kiss of the father comes before the son even gets a word of faith out. Before he's had anything to say, the father's already embraced him and kissed him. And some of you are here, you've been here for months now, and you're saying, I want to have faith. I want to believe. I just can't believe. But I want to believe, and I hear what's being said, and and I want that kind of relationship with God. And now we're reading about the cry of the Spirit in your heart, and you're saying, I want to have that experience of the cry of the Spirit saying to me, you're a child of God, et cetera, et cetera, but I just can't seem to do it. What do you think that is? but the beginning of faith. That desire, where do you think that comes from? There are not normal people walking around the world saying that to themselves. Christians talk that way. If what you want is God, tell him. He's not playing games with you. He's not messing with you. If you are here saying, I want to believe, I want to have that experience of God speaking in my heart, it's because the grace of God is already on your life. 
The kiss of the Father is already on you. And I invite you this morning, just respond and say to him, I believe. Help my unbelief. All right, let's sing now.